All right, welcome back, Under the Sun listeners. We have another episode of The Art and Science of Coaching. I'm your host, Coach Tim Hall, and I am with my co-host, Coach Zach Gregg. Zach, hey, hey. here we go again. Just one more time. <laughs> yep. Oh, well, we're in this we're in this for the long haul, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, today our topic or we have a guest and we have many topics within this one guest today. Uh, and we'll get to our guest here in a second, but we kind of arrived at this because of our interest and also the people we know in the world of of virtual racing and uh you know you know this story but a few weeks ago i watched you and some of your teammates compete in the virtual tour of the gila and i found it to be more than interesting it's quite fascinating it was entertaining and then that led to me talking to eric hill of project echelon and got me interested in our guest today who is zach nair guest today is Zach Nair. Zach races uh, with Project Echelon. Is a teammate of yours, Zach Gregg. I'm going to have a problem with the Zach, yeah. <laughs> so I might just use last names today, but uh, I became really interested in Zach Nair. Uh, raced really well at Tour, Tour of the Gila, and then found out he's got his hands involved in many different things uh, in the real world of racing, uh, as well as in the virtual world. So, Let's welcome our guest, Zach Nair. Zach, welcome to the Art and Science of Coaching. Thank you, Tim. Thank you guys for having me on. Really excited to jump into the conversation, and I know we have a lot to talk about, so I'm really excited. Well, good. Um, so I want to first kick things off a little bit uh, with, you know, what I'm, I was going through Velo News and and you as a writer and someone who breaks down power files and that sort of thing. That's one of the things you're really into, but maybe describe just you want to, what is your bio as it stands right now? You race professionally on the road, you're doing gravel for another team, you're doing virtual. When someone says, Hey Zach, what do you do? What do you say? Yeah, it's a complicated question. I do a lot of things right now. Two years ago, I was really just road racing, and that was it. And in the past two years, I've added gravel racing to that list. I've added virtual racing to that list. Um, I've started my own coaching business and then jumped into writing for Velo News and Cycling News and a few other coaching and cycling publications like Training Peaks and Cycling Tips, kind of a freelancer in that realm. Um, so it is a lot. I'm kind of dipping my toe in a lot of different areas of the cycling and coaching world. So, yeah. Well, I want to, I got two things I want to take you back to. All right. Number one, we're asking this of everyone who is a guest on the show. And that is, do you remember your first bike race? Yes, I do. I do. So tell us about that. Place. Oh. Oh, okay. Tell us a little bit about that. What was that? What was that experience like? Yeah, it was a junior criterium in, I think, National Wisconsin, and I had started riding like a real road bike maybe 
a month or two before that and was just like, I'm going to try this race. My dad had raced for a long time, so he knew the ins and outs of like finding a race and going to registration and how to pin a number on. So like he had me covered for that part of the race. (laughs) And then I jumped into the junior race. There were maybe six or seven other kids. I think I was 16 or 17. So I was still like pretty pretty old compared to some of the juniors were 13 14 and 15 and i just remember i think my heart rate was 195 the entire race (laughs) and i was just going as hard as i could the whole time just like trying to stay close to the wheel in front of me but not crashing any of the corners i didn't want to embarrass myself too much and i think i got dropped two or three times and lapped two or three times and then i crossed the line and for some reason my brain was like that was so awesome i want to do that again well that's that's another thing that we ask everyone is we all have that that first race and it's memorable it's one we don't forget and it leaves a lasting impression on us your description of crossing that finish line uh is that that is kind of similar to what other people say what was it for you that made you decide i love this i want to do it again Yeah, I've thought about it a lot because I'm a very competitive person, so I don't like losing. So that first race, I was just getting crushed the whole time. But I think it was just, it was really the thrill of the speed just really got me. I think for a long time when I was a kid, I wanted to be a a professional race car driver. Like I always kind of leaned towards that and I wanted to try go-karts and that kind of thing. And I still love that stuff. I just don't do it very often. But then... I done a little bit of running, but like, that's not that fast. It's not that exciting. But then when I got in a bike for the first time, it's like 20, 25 miles an hour feels like a hundred. It's, and it's so cool. Cause it's like, I'm doing it myself and I'm taking these corners and you can feel the G force and like just something with that. Just, it hooked me for sure. Yeah. We, we can relate to that. We can relate to that. So you do that. You're in your, your junior years, kind of your high school years. i I would think, and and then that led you to, if I'm not mistaken, it led you to competing at Marion University, racing collegiate cycling, and I happened to uh, send your former coach a message the other day. I was like, hey, what do you know about this guy? And, of course, he knows you pretty well, and I'm talking about Dean Peterson, who is a very close friend of mine, and he had high praise for you, and, and I'd forgotten this fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Uh, we actually have a pair of individual national champions on this show today, and I'm I'm not one of those. There's only three of us. So you won the individual national championship, right? And was this in Asheville the first year they did that? This was in um, Colorado. Oh, okay. Um, in Grand I think Junction. it was the first year it was in Colorado. Yes. Um, 2017, I believe. Okay. So you raced collegiately at Marion. Uh, we hope to have a show later on just about collegiate cycling specifically, just what it has done for the sport, what it continues to do. But for you personally, um, how did the collegiate experience help you become who you are today? Wow. I would say... It was huge. It's the biggest thing um, in my life that's really put me on the path to where I am now, for sure. Um, 
when I went to Marion, I didn't know anyone. So I had to make friends very quickly. And that kind of put me into like a real team environment for the first time. In high school, I ran a junior team here in Wisconsin, and we all went to like different schools in the area. So we didn't see each other that often. We didn't ride with each other that often. We kind of raced in the summer together, but I didn't really know those guys. And all of a sudden at Marion, I'm basically living with my teammates and having every meal together and riding together every single day. And then by the time we got to road season for the first time and racing for the first time, it was like, we're just all on the same exact page. Like we don't even need to say anything to each other in the races. We're just one team together and everyone's on the same page. And that was really eye opening for me. Cause it was like, this is like a real cycling team. And with that going to nationals and the importance that Marion placed on the cycling team and how, how important it was to the school and the program and everything. And just the caliber of riders that would come in every single year, we had junior world champions and junior national champions. And it was like, I had to just constantly be stepping up my game just to have a spot to be able to go to the national championships. And that was, it was really tough, but I learned a lot and I really learned that cycling is not something that I prefer to do casually. It's something that I really, really, really want to do my very best and be very competitive about and shoot for things like national championships rather than just riding once or twice a week and maybe doing a crit in the summer. This is something that I'm going to dedicate every day to training and really focus on the bigger goals and kind of not exactly morph my life around cycling, but in a certain way, sometimes <laughs> moving to Tucson and all that to focus on road season and trying to become a professional. Well, Zach Gregg and I have talked recently about when a young junior rider comes to a program like Marion or, or ours at Lee's McRae, uh, it's, it is still a lifestyle, but it's more than that. And it, it demands more than that. Just to your point, you're surrounded by high caliber athletes. And let's, you know, I think it's safe to say some are, are less, much less serious than others. And, but those ones who are serious are very serious. And you either, as you did, step up your game and compete or oof, it's going to be, it's going to be a rough experience. And, um, but it has really helped many bike racers like yourself, men and women, uh, elevate themselves and get the most out of it. And you've, you've done a fantastic job of that. Did you have any idea when you were doing that that it would open up doors the way it has here since you graduated? No, no, not at all. Um, I remember really – it really started to change in 2017 before that I'd kind of been one of the better guys on the team, but at, na at the national championships, I was always like in the background, like kind of working for someone else. I was maybe shooting for the top 10. And then in 2017, I actually had knee surgery that winter. So I didn't ride for probably two or three months and then just started doing rehab in January and February came back to racing in April and then we had nationals in May. 
So I really didn't have any expectations, but I'd just been so focused on the rehab and just coming back as quickly and as healthy as possible that I think that really focused block of training just set me up perfectly for nationals. And then when I won, I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. It's, it's still hard to believe sometimes. Actually. Well, you bring up an even another, another um, great point is that, and this is something Zach Greg and I were talking about the other day. We have a couple of athletes on our team who, um, similar situation stuff has happened and we're looking ahead to uh, early May at Chan at nationals. And, you know, there was plan a, but now we're on plan B and we're trying to determine, um, okay, how to handle that. What can we get out of nationals for this person? What can they focus on and concentrate on? That had to be a great feeling for you. I'm sure when you were going through the winter time and you get surgery, you're thinking, oh, man, there goes my season. But then you, how did you flip your mental approach to get yourself ready? And then you focused because you, I would, I'm just thinking out loud here. You knew then you couldn't be all things that you used to be, and but you could get out of it what you could. How did you do that mentally? And then, uh, and then, yeah, just what you were experiencing as you did it, because I would think you would have to really change your whole approach and your outlook, and bear down and buckle down even more than when the conditions were ideal. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question that I have thought about a lot. Um, I think my, it's something with my outlook didn't really change that much. My outlook was always to be the best I could be and do the most that I could. So when I was healthy and able to train all the time, I'd be training 15, 20 hours a week because I could. When I was in rehab, it was I need to do these exercises today. I need to elevate my knee for an hour. I need to do this, this, and this in order to do my rehab. And then once I started riding, it was just how much can I handle today? So at the very beginning, I was riding for five or 10 minutes at zero watts. It was just like just turning the pedal over to get my knee to be able to bend that much. And every day it was just how much can I do? And at the beginning, it was, like I said, it was basically nothing compared to what I was doing more. But in that moment, it was just, what can I do today? And I would just focus on that. And every day, I felt good about what I could do. Whereas if I was thinking, oh, I used to be able to ride two hours today, I did five minutes. Like, what's the point? But it was, I did five minutes today, maybe tomorrow I could do 10. And then maybe next week, I, could, I can do half an hour. A month later, I can do... If I can do like two hours in March, like that's awesome because I was doing five minutes a month ago. And that approach just really helped me probably mentally more than anything. Just keep coming back to rehab every single day, putting the work in and coming back as fast as I could in a safe way too. Cause I never wanted to have that mentality of I'm missing out on training I need to like go do an hour today, even if it hurts. Like I just want to get back as fast as possible. It was very methodical. Um, and for me, studying exercise science, I think that helped me a lot too because I realized the damage I could do if I tried to come back too fast. And it's I could ruin my whole career if I try to come back and my knee doesn't heal properly, and then I'm 
can't run for the rest of my life. I was like, that's worst case scenario. That's not worth it at all. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, that's a, so just taking that approach. That's yeah. a great testimony. It's, it's really, it is a great story and great testimony, uh, to many others out there who are encountering, you know, real difficulty and overcoming an obstacle. Um, and you did it the right way. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, it takes a lot to be able to takes a lot of discipline to to be able to do that and not get defeated and, you know, and stay the course. And I love what you said about it's just one day at a time. What can I do today? Don't worry about tomorrow or next week or three months from now. Just get it done today and every single day make progress. And sooner or later, it adds up. And we're going to share that story with a few people on our team because it's it's powerful. I think those kinds of things are very powerful and, um, you know, we all can learn from it and teach us. So that's good stuff, man. Um, all right. So you go through that. I'm going to let uh, Zach Gregg take over because he's, uh, you know, um, he's come up with some, some good questions for you. Uh, yeah, Zach Gregg, take it away. Yeah, I wrote your questions, so I'm going to ask them. Um, <laughs> so what year did you end up graduating college in? That was spring of 2018. Okay, nice. So in between that time um, and where you are now, what was the progression into pro bike racing and then eventually into coaching and the writing that you do with Vela News and these other uh, cycling media platforms? Yeah, I would say it all actually started in college. Uh, my junior and senior year, I was writing for... Um, I think back in that day, it was LAPT, and then it was Project Echelon, and then it kind of morphed over the years, and I was riding for them, and doing like a full spring calendar as an amateur, like going to Joe Martin Stage Race, Cascade, and Amateur Nationals, um, while still at Marion, which was a lot. I remember getting back from Joe Martin one year at like 3.30 in the morning and having, eating, having an 8 a.m. class the next day. <laughs> so that one was rough. Oh, man. <laughs> but um, that is almost the environment but, that's expected of Marion, isn't it? Where everybody has both collegiate interests and these national and international aspirations, right? Yes, yes. It definitely, you can definitely get lucky depending on what your major is. Some of the majors, you can basically take your classes on the road and do all your work on the road. Whereas mine being more in the science realm, I had a lot of labs and you can't miss the labs. You can't, can't do those online. So I had to be there. <laughs> so that meant some, some very late nights and some very early mornings. Gotcha. Yeah. And then, so in 2018, did you start racing for Project Echelon, right? I think that was, so that year I joined Team California. Okay. Which interesting story because i was never based in california i was always based in the midwest it was it was really a team where we had riders from all across the country and we were going to get together to do the big stage races throughout the year um so redlands Gila, cascade nationals um were all on that list and then a few other select races like i think chico stage race was on there um and that was really a development team that fit me pretty well in that time in my life. Cause I was still younger, just still trying to learn. I was only 
probably four, five years into my cycling career. So I was still learning a lot, still learning very fast. Had never done Redlands before, had never done Hilo before, had never done Cascade before. So that was really an opportunity for me to get and to go, to go and experience those races for the first time. Um, and then I did very well at U23 Nationals that year. I was fourth in the time trial and was in the break in the road race. And then long story short, that was the year that we had one lap to go and the break had a minute. It seemed like the break was going to stay off. And then there was a severe thunderstorm and we got delayed two hours and then we got caught and it was a sad day for me, but that's okay. <laughs> Man, that, that um, race produced well some in the, time the best, trial. like funniest, craziest stories of sitting in a, uh, what was it? A high school gymnasium or something like that. And just the restart and the madness. And yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I don't even remember who won that race, but I remember the stories related to it and people calling me on the phone. Uh, yeah. Sitting inside like, Hey man, uh, I just wanted to, uh, yeah, give you a call and let you know that we're just sitting in a building halfway through our race. So yeah, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and so those results led yeah. you to, we're like 60 miles. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, no, you're good. So yes. Um, I think throughout that year, um, I talked to Eric Hill and, uh, we had known each other from racing in Wisconsin previous years. Like I said, I'd been on LAPT before when it was more of a local and regional team. And I had seen that year, what project echelon was doing, like in the pro calendar as an amateur team. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like, I don't know what happened in the last like year or two, but this team is like on another level right now and they just keep going up. And then I was talking to Eric and in the off season, I was kind of just seeing what opportunities I might have for teams for the following year. And then Project Echelon was number one on my list. I was basically just waiting for Eric to say, we do have a spot for you. Do you want to join? I was like, immediately I was like, yes. <laughs> And I joined the team and did, again, like the full pro calendar, Redlands, Gila, Cascade, Nationals, um, and then pro Nationals for the first time. And that was, that was pretty insane to do that as an amateur, having just been doing collegiate racing just two years before that. I have a, I have a question with all that. All of a sudden racing with these guys that, yeah, yeah. I have, so you describe that a little bit more deeply to go from where you were uh you know you're competing at a high level in collegiate then you make this next level bump doing the pro circuit but zach this is something zach Gregg and i talked about an awful lot that we try to convey with our athletes and that that next level really is it is a big jump when you go from one level to the next sometimes it's subtle other times it's massive but what for you did was the eye opener when you went to pro road nationals like oh okay this is this is something different describe that difference what was it how was it different for you because you just said it it was noticeable yeah for me the one thing that sticks out in my mind and this might be like an unexpected answer but the one thing that stuck out to me was how how casual and at ease the professionals were in that race. Whereas for me, it was the biggest race I'd ever done in my life. I've been thinking about this all year. And then these guys that I've been watching on TV, racing the Vuelta and the Tour de France, 
they're just like chatting on the start line and just like catching up with friends. And then in the race, like we're doing three or 400 watts of the climb. And I mean, like, I can't even tell if they're sweating. <laughs> I'm like, these guys like aren't even warmed up yet. And I'm like on my limit right now. Like I felt like I was pretty good to get to that level. And then I'm just like, these guys are just 10 steps ahead of me already. <laughs> yeah. But you stuck with it, you know? And I think that's, that goes back to what you said about your first bike race. Like you get confronted with this new reality and it, it really wakes you up. You're like, oh, so I've got work to do. And I, you, you can either fold chop and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to be happy with where I'm at, or I'm going to do something about it and try to have some more breakthroughs because if they can get there, some of whom race collegiately, by the way, uh, they come from the collegiate ranks and, and now they are where they are. Uh, you got a choice, you know, it, it's a, it's a choice that a lot of people can make. And yeah, that, that eye opening experience, I think it's something that all young riders, we all go through it, but it's how you respond in that moment moving forward that's really going to determine where you end up. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm sure you've noticed with the the power profile analysis and being in those races and experiencing it is that whatever you think the benchmark is, is actually just the point of entry to whatever you actually want to go do. And, you know, so, I mean, I had a pretty quick rise through the the ranks and, you know, like 300 Watts at first, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, my FTP is 300 Watts. Like I'm going to be invincible. And then you start seeing what it actually takes and where you actually have to be. And you just have to keep resetting because it's not like you can choose to be at a certain level and have the success that you want. You just have to be at that level to even compete and participate. Um, which is just, yeah tough sport right <laughs> yeah. um and so where does where does coaching come in with all of this i mean you're you've got to have your hands full with first school and then try to be a professional cyclist um so where do you find the time to to dip your feet into coaching yeah i think coaching really started my senior year at marion um so i just won nationals the year before and then was doing quite well um, in the amateur stage races throughout the year. And then I remember, um, coming home in the summer and we have the tour of America's Dairyland here in Milwaukee. And I just remember noticing like a lot of people seem to know my name and I've never been that kind of guy that like knows everybody in the community and goes on all these rides and is hanging out at the coffee shop to talk to people. And like, people would come up to me and like say hi and like i've been following your results and like congrats and i was like thanks this is really cool and then it kept happening kept happening and it's like all these people are like following my racing and then i got more and more questions about how to get into racing how to train for this like what kind of bike do i need for this event or something like that and i was like i really enjoy this kind of stuff i really enjoy the analysis and looking at those kinds of things and how to plan for those kinds of things and I had a few people actually ask me about coaching and I was like, I think I can do this. And I started looking into it and got a training peaks coach account and was, I had always been looking at the numbers on my own for myself. And then I was like, I can definitely apply this to other people. It's not in my mind, it's not super complicated. And I really enjoy looking at it and I really enjoy planning out a season and training periods, racing periods, and resting periods. 
and I was studying all this at the same time in college. So it was just really like putting it all together for the first time and then getting my first couple of clients. And then with my first couple of clients, I was very nervous because I was like, I've never done this before. I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> but it went well um, from the beginning. And I still have a couple of those first few clients. Um, and really just putting that all together and just kind of building that just year after year, just seeing who was interested and what kind of people I could reach out to and what kind of people would be interested in my style of coaching. Cause for me, it's, it's a hundred percent remote. It's a hundred percent, um, flexible. Like I don't do that many like in-person meetings, which in 2020 became the norm, <laughs> but I was kind of doing that before just because I was on the road all the time and I was busy with school all the time. So it would have been great if I was based in Milwaukee and able to ride with my clients every week. But I just, when I was in school and traveling that much for racing, I just couldn't do it at the time. So I got very good at the remote coaching, which turned out to be a very good idea. Right. Yeah. We're all, we're all remote coaches, even if we don't want to be at this point. <laughs> um, that's cool. Yeah. And uh, so now um, after, yeah, that, that first year on project echelon, um, it seemed like you have branched out a lot since 2019. So you are competing at a high level on the road in gravel racing and virtually. So how do you fit all of that in and decide what to focus on? Um, and I guess what's, what's the most enjoyable thing right now? What are you most excited for in the future? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, because coming into 2020, I was most excited about gravel. Um, and the entire year, I only got to do two gravel races. So I only just got a tiny taste of it. And I'm really excited for that going forward. It's just, I haven't really experienced much of it yet. Um, plus one of the races I did in 2020 was the mid South, which was basically an eight hour cycle cross race in the mud. <laughs> it was one of the longest days I've ever had on a bike. It was just, I think I might've averaged nine or 10 miles an hour. Ouch. And I averaged like almost 300 Watts for eight hours. <laughs> and I was like, this is the worst race ever. Like, I think walking might be just as fast. But when um, you crossed the finish line, was it then, that same feeling <laughs> as, as your first race of, I got to get better at this. I got to do it more. <laughs> I think, I needed a beer first yeah. and then after that I felt pretty, pretty good. <laughs> so, and then the virtual racing thing really just came out of nowhere for me. Um, I was very, I was never anti Zwift or anti virtual racing, but it would just, it just was never something that I really was like, Oh, I want to try that. So I'd never even been on Zwift until March of 2020. Um, and then I just jumped right into it. And this was the only outlet I had at that time with like being able to connect with people. I mean, this was, yeah, March and April, 2020 was like full on quarantine, didn't leave the house or anything. So I was like, this is the only opportunity I'm going to have to connect with my teammates for who knows how long at the, at the time I was thinking maybe a few months, but now I'm really glad that I started doing that then because I jumped into the racing 
it was a steep learning curve. I remember my first first whip race, very similar story. I got dropped. <laughs> I was like, I'm doing 350 watts. Why am I getting dropped? <laughs> this is so dumb. And then I was like, I took a couple of days off and then like tried another one, tried another one. And then just slowly started getting better at the virtual racing thing. And then as the year wore on, it was like, wow, this might be the only racing I have for a long time. Like I might as well focus on this as much as I do real life racing. So that's really what I've been doing with virtual racing is kind of going all in with that in terms of like focusing my training on it, because as of right now, my first real life race might not be until April or May this year. So for the, for a very long time, it was like, I don't need to be riding endurance. Like I can build that up later. I'm still training a good amount, but with the virtual racing, having the focus on that and just seeing my power numbers go up and up and up with that is really, really cool because it's also something that I never trained, um, on the road at all. I never trained anaerobic efforts. I was always like a long zone two training kind of guy, which work, works really well when you're racing three or four hours a day. But for the virtual racing, it was just all these punchy, 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 30 second, one minute, two minute efforts that I'd never trained before. I hated doing them in training. But now having worked on that uh, part of my power profile for the last nine months, basically, it's really interesting to see like, oh, I'm actually not that bad at this. I just never trained it before. So um, yeah, tying that all together it's very interesting having this dynamic now where I love virtual racing, but I also love gravel racing. So it's like, I love 20 minute races and I love 12 hour races. <laughs> so that's the best of planning both worlds. my training going forward is going to be interesting. Yes. <laughs> well then you, yeah, you never get bored, I guess. And then having row kind of in the middle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is very cool. I'll just have to learn right outside again soon. So, and then, so what are the two main, um, indoor leagues that you're participating in right now? There's one like on Zwift and one on RGT, right? Yes. So I just started the Zwift racing league. Um, and that is, it's very complicated. I think I'm in the, in division one of one of the America's community leagues. So I think it's one or two steps below the premier league which is kind of the goal. Um, I watch those every week and I, it sounds lame, but I kind of like dream about being in those Premier League races because it looks cool to me. But, <laughs> um, and then uh, on RGT, the Echelon Racing League um, with Project Echelon have been doing a bunch of those races and have Redlands coming up uh, this coming weekend, which I'm super excited about. Yeah. And so I didn't even know that you weren't in the premier league or whatever, because these races, um, the virtual stuff is so well cast across all the different platforms that I tuned in last week, which was, I guess the first ZRL race. Um, and yeah, your team was in there and just like totally dominated. And I was like, wow, he's like at the top. So, you know, just like, you don't have to tell anybody else, you know, that could be the top league. I don't know. Um, but the races, yeah. I mean, I was sitting on the trainer. It's like 25 degrees outside. They are entertaining. We're at a point 
where the commentators are very knowledgeable, both of the athletes and of the, the actual racing experience that you're going through. Um, so, I mean, yeah, for an hour and a half, the combination of the, the men's and the women's racing, um, it's a fantastic distraction from actually pedaling your bike on a trainer. Um, yeah. And so the, and then contrast that with the RGT stuff where they're, um, real road racing, um, and they what they do is they take the gpx files from the outdoor races and turn them into indoor circuits and uh then unfortunately they make you guys race like the what the last 60 to 100k of some of these races um the hardest part yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so how does that how does that zwift fitness where you're very anaerobic and you know this high burn rate for 20 to 40 minutes how does that translate to rgt where you're actually kind of reliving some of the stage racing that you've experienced in the outdoor world. Yeah, it's interesting because I was on Zwift for so long and just doing the Zwift racing for probably four or five months before I tried RGT. So I got very good at the Zwift kind of effort, which in these higher level races is really it's those crazy like one and two minute anaerobic efforts at five or 600 Watts. But then in between you're still sitting between for me at my weight, you're still sitting between like 300 and 330 Watts in between those climbs or in between those efforts on the course, which when I first started doing this whip stuff, I was like, this is the worst thing ever. It's like over unders, but the over part is like 550 Watts. <laughs> like this is, I can't do like more than two of those before my heart's going to explode. But now I've gotten very used to that effort and still recovering at 320 Watts and still being able to get my heart rate down. Um, whereas on RGT, it's much more realistic. There's a lot more opportunities to coast and really take the pressure off the pedals if you're in the draft on a flat section of the course if you're coming down a descent or if you're coming through a set of corners you can really get in like five ten or twenty seconds of just complete rest and bring your heart rate all the way down and then kind of punch out of the corner get back on top of it i mean it's incredibly realistic on rgt um getting used to that effort is something that I'm still learning because I'm so used to the Zwift. I just want to like keep the pressure on all the time with RGT. You really have to back off and then use the effort when it counts. Um, and then knowing these courses, the real life courses that we've done in some of the echelon racing league is, is really interesting because it's like, I've done this climb in real life. Like I know how long it is. Whereas a lot of these guys are racing or riding on RGT for the first time. They're like, is this a 10 or a 20 minute climb? And it's like, it's kind of a big difference. <laughs> so I would yeah. know <laughs> like if there's a steep section with a K to go, if I attack here, I can hold it. Where some guys, they were like, I thought we had like five minutes left. It's like, <laughs> we were a lot closer than that. That's cool. That, yeah, the, the real life advantage that you have over some of these guys. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so how do you take this experience as a racer and transition to, uh, directing the, uh, or helping direct the virtual world championships on Zwift for team USA? Yes, that was a really cool experience, really eye-opening experience. I really 
took a lot of the knowledge that I had with the power analysis um, that I've been doing and writing about and applying that to the course for Zwift Worlds and looking at the power profiles of our athletes and then the power that be what that would be required on those climbs in order to win, especially on that course, because it was a very unique finish in that it was the finish was basically at the top of a minute and a half long climb, which on Zwift, we'd never really seen anything like that before. And it was really a lot of, it was actually a lot of guessing on like who has really good one minute power, who might be able to hold it for a minute and a half or two minutes at the end of a race where you just averaged five watts a kilo for 45 minutes. And you also do that effort on top of that at the end. And then we would look at our, look at our roster, look at our athletes and see who is best suited to help in these areas of the race. We had a couple more diesel engines that we were like, these guys, like no offense to them, but they have no chance at the finish comes down to it. Their two minute power is okay, but it's the world championships. Like if it's not world-class, you're not going to get top 20, but these guys are so strong that we would use them throughout the race, chase down breakaways, follow breakaways. In the men's race, there was a lot of attacking. I remember it was very aggressive. Uh, I think Belgium and Great Britain were attacking a lot. And I was really glad that we had those guys to pull it back together, so that we would have a chance to keep the other guys fresher for the finish. And same thing in the women's race. Our women's roster was so strong um, all around and you could see it in the final results. I think we were fourth, fifth, seventh, and ninth. It was all like, it was all, we were right there. And I think if we replayed that finish 10 times over in the women's race, I think we would have gotten the two women on the podium. I think half the time it was just 10th of a second here, 10th of a second there, just learning when, when to jump, when to sprint. It's just so close and swift, especially with the sticky draft and all of that. Yeah. Well, it was, it was definitely timing. Timing was even more critical. It seemed in that, in both the men and the women race, that virtual timing of when to place that attack, uh, how to utilize that one final anaerobic effort that you were talking about, I think it's clear, you know, um, and I think to your point, those races are harder than what people think they are all throughout the race, and then you've got to do that massive effort at the very end. And uh, those that won timed it perfectly. Uh, and I think the women's race was um, – closer there at the end uh it got closer and the guys was a little bit more of a separation uh but again it was just down to timing and i got a question for you about about directing what as you were describing that and hearing your full story when you got the phone call from usa cycling i'm assuming it's usa cycling they call you hey zach uh we would like for you to direct team usa at worlds, at virtual worlds. I mean, were you, did you ever imagine that that call would come? And when it did, yeah, how, what was that like? It was totally unexpected. At first, um, I think it was, they sent me a message first. And at first I thought it was a joke because I was like, wait, Zwift Worlds, is that a thing? And then I was like, wait, I'm directing? Like, are you sending this to the right person? <laughs> and then as I talked with them more, I was like, 
oh, they want me to be like assistant director. And then they were like, oh, we saw like your results on Zwift and I done like the, the trials race um, for USA Cycling and did quite well there. So they knew that I was good in the virtual realm and with my writing on Bella News, they were like, he's probably knowledgeable about this kind of thing. And I was like, this is came out of nowhere, but this is amazing. And then I was like, they were planning meetings and I was like meetings with like the director of the national team and meetings with all these like professional riders that I'd seen on TV. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was very surreal. So they, you know, they took it serious. I mean, my, my impression is that they, and also these other national federations and teams, this is a serious thing that they're doing. This is not a joke. It's like, it's as important as anything else that they're doing. And I think it's a, a door of opportunity for people like you, as well as athletes, because we had a mix of uh, legit real world professional racers on these teams. And we had some people that others had never heard of, like, like you may have heard of them and I have heard of them. And, uh, but then there's a lot of people that came out of the woodwork who are fabulous bicycle riders who are great in the virtual world with a real chance to win. And I think, I'm curious, from your standpoint, after having experienced this, where do you think this is going to go and how much more serious and important will it become in the coming years? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's only going to keep growing. Um, I think, I think the, the real life professionals jumping into virtual racing this past year, I don't think that was a one-off. I think that's going to keep happening. I think we're going to see more pro riders jumping on Swift, jumping on RGT during the off season. Um, kind of like in the old days when they used to do track, they used to race track all winter, the real road guys. And I think going forward, especially if there starts to be money in virtual racing, I think a lot of the real life professionals are like, oh, if I can take a month or two to learn this and then start winning stuff. I mean, if cycling is my livelihood and I'm one of the best in the world, if I can just learn how to translate it to virtual racing, I mean, that's, that's perfect. That's huge. And I think it's something that it's slowly growing towards a wider audience. And I think the production value of some of these races now is kind of insane. Um, I was with, I was hanging out with my friends um, the other day who don't follow cycling at all. They don't really know anything about cycling. And I was watching one of the live streams. I think I was watching the race back that I'd done for the ZRL league with the professional commentary and the courses and they had all the numbers and everything. And then they were like, what are you watching? And I was like, Oh, this is like Zwift. And they were like, is that real? And I was like, no, <laughs> but they were like, it has commentary and everything. And I was like, yeah, they're like, wait, but it's not a real race. And I was like, it's a virtual race, but they're, and they're just amazed that they have this whole production team that puts together these camera angles and these races. And they even have like the banners on the course. And we see this in RGT as well. And then the commentary, you put that all together and it's like, these live streams with 10, 20, 30,000 views, it's, it's quite amazing. Like how far it's come and cycling worldwide is not 
the biggest sport either. So to have virtual racing be this big already, I can only see it going up from here. Yeah, that is that is very cool. And, you know, hopefully it leads to more people um, coming into the sport. You know, if if there were suddenly a switch from people buying Pelotons to people buying, uh, you know, real bikes and putting them on trainers as their entry point. Um, I think, you know, it would, it would introduce a lot of people to e-racing and e-riding that wouldn't normally be able to, to go out on a group ride or feel encouraged and enough to, you know, do these things outdoors. So that's, um, that's really exciting. And, you know, do you think that that's going to be the case um, into the future is that we're going to see a lot of these new riders, um, coming by way of Zwift and some of these alternative pathways instead of just road racing, crit racing, mountain bikes. Yeah, I really, I really hope so. Um, I think like, it's really interesting in my mind to see what Peloton is and what Peloton does and kind of where Zwift and RGT are. I feel like they're so close in being able to like merge those mindsets to bring more people in where Peloton it's just, it's a little more interactive. It's a little more like high energy with like someone there to coach you, but you're, but you're still, you're just doing an hour long workout on a bike. You're going to sweat a lot and it's going to be hard, but you're in the comfort of your own home and you can do it like any time of day. As we have done RGT, they have all that. They have the virtual platform. They have these hard workouts. It's just more, a lot more self-motivation with like the real cycling platforms. And I feel like they can just like come together and just like get more people to get on bikes and try riding bikes. And then, like you said, in, instead of getting an indoor only spin bike, which are, they're pretty awesome, but they're crazy expensive. If they can just get like a normal road bike put it on just a basic trainer for a couple hundred bucks and like start doing that. And then when the weather's nice and stuff starts opening back up, hopefully they'll try riding outside and they're like, wow, cycling is really cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we could probably go into way too much detail on how close Peloton is to getting us like 20,000 new members on Swift and RGT, but it's yeah. Um, it is so close. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. so what do you think, um, are some of the biggest differences, uh, or let's see this question we've already kind of covered. So, um, let's talk about the main differences between Zwift and RGT from a perspective of somebody just getting into indoor riding. Okay. So yeah, Zwift is, Zwift has a way bigger community. So if you're wanting to learn alongside other people, if you're wanting to learn group rides, and even if you're just, even if you just start a group ride, a lot of those have very busy like messaging boards. They'll say, we're going to ride at this number. So look for this number on your screen. We're going to like go over this climb. It should take us this long, something like that. Very like basic level. I don't know anything about this, this game. I don't know anything about this platform. I'm just trying to learn. Whereas on RGT, right now, it's much more realistic in that you can jump on and it feels much more like riding a bike outside where you go over these climbs, it's hard on the climbs, on the downhills, you can basically coast. And 
just get down to the other side and then keep going. Whereas on Zwift, you kind of have to keep pedaling the whole time. So it's I think Zwift is definitely a harder effort if you're just learning to ride for the first time. Whereas RGT, if you know a little bit about how to work the game and how to set up your bike and everything and pick the course, it's much more realistic, much more similar to riding outside. So what, yeah. So what you're saying is since Tim likes riding outside so much, he should get an RGT membership uh, for these, uh, these next two weeks that are going to be a little bit rough around here. Man, I'm getting Eric's emails about these races, and I've got I've come very close to signing up to some amateur races. I mean, we're talking a lot about pro racing, but there's a lot of amateur racing to be had. I mean, on both platforms, and yeah, don't tempt me. I'm like, I'm a, I'm really working on just building my aerobic engine even more, and I have been this year, and I love anaerobic efforts because I'm. At heart, I'm a criterium racer. Like, I love those kinds of efforts. But, uh, you know, it's like I was telling someone the other day, like, I have enough addictions in my life already. Like, while I don't ski, I live a half a mile from the ski resort, okay? I live that close, and I haven't skied. If I go skiing, I'm going to create a new addiction. I know I am. Same thing with virtual racing. But maybe one of these days. I do have a question, though. And this is something Zach Gregg and I, as well as Matt Zimmer and some others I've talked to them about, is um, it's a game. Virtual riding, virtual racing, especially racing, it's a game. It's a video game. It's not like racing outside. And you've, you know, you've been explaining that all throughout this conversation. Maybe touch on really the difference between the two and how we learned what um, – a while back, there was a, a certain world champion who jumped on uh, a Zwift race and got slaughtered uh, because she raced it. I'll say she. She raced it like she would a real-world race outside, and it's not the same thing. So maybe touch on that a little bit, the difference between, hey, this is a game, it's a video game, how to race that versus the real world. Yeah, especially with Zwift. Zwift is so different from real life in so many ways that for the for the real life pros to jump on Zwift and just do well right away almost never happens. You have you really have to learn the game. You really have to learn the numbers with drafting. Like if the field is moving this fast, like what's the minimum number that I can sit at so that I don't get dropped? But then a lot of times you'll see just the pros riding way too hard and they keep like bumping at the front and they're just like wasting a hundred Watts of energy because they're just riding too hard. And then by the time they get to these clumps, they don't know. They expect it. I think they expect it to be a lot easier than it is on the climbs. If they're going up a two minute climb, they're like, Oh, in real life, it, if I do 400, 450 Watts, like there's no way I'm going to get dropped. Whereas on Zwift, we're going up the climb at five to 600 Watts because we're crazy. <laughs> and that's how the game works. It's like, if you don't stay with the front group, there's no getting back. If you miss the blob, there's zero chance you're getting back on, which is very unlike real life. And I think the positioning and timing of sprint efforts, you kind of touched on that before with how close it can be if the finish of the world champion at the world championships, like something like that, where 
I mean, the difference of a tenth of a second is everything. Whereas in real life, you have all this real life positioning. So you can be in front of or behind a rider, or you can come around someone in the corner. It makes the differences so much greater. Whereas on Zwift, it's really just power. So then that timing is so much more important because there is no, you have to come around this person. You can just kind of ride through them a lot of the time. And so learning the game is very interesting because it's, it does make it like a real, it does feel like a real race for me. It's never felt like, oh, this isn't real bike racing. It's just something different. It's just a different kind of effort. Whereas in real life, positioning is really important. In Zwift, timing is really important. So it's just kind of the balance between, there's these different factors that are still very important. It's just, they're different from real life. So I still really like that aspect. I like that I have to think on my feet during the races when my heart rate is 185, which feels very realistic in that I have to make these decisions and focus on when I'm timing my effort. It's just that the final outcome won't be based on positioning like it is in real life, based on did I sprint half a second too early or half a second too late? I mean, that's the, that's the difference between first and 10th a lot of times in Zwift sprints. Well, we've all heard we've uh, racers after a race are like, oh, I, I would have done so much, you know, I would have been better. I was, I had the power, I had the legs, but I just got boxed in. I got, I got caught behind this crash. I got caught behind this or that. And, and in the virtual world, guess what? Mm, you can't say that. Like you either have it or you don't have it. Yes, I, I do really like that, that there's there's a lot fewer excuses that you can give in virtual racing. The only, the only ones that are different that you can't say in real life are like, Oh, I had a dropout or my Wi-Fi went out, <laughs> which is a good excuse. It's happened to me a couple times. <laughs> you can't really overcome that. So that really is the worst feeling is just seeing your power go to zero for those like two seconds. And you're just like, well, my life got way harder all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see. So for your athletes with your experience doing all this indoor racing, are you kind of periodizing their year where there is a block dedicated to indoor racing to keep things interesting, especially with 2020 and the way things have gone? Yeah, I would say for some of my athletes, um, definitely for some of my athletes, they're very, they have very very busy lives so indoor training is really all they have right now so building virtual racing or virtual workouts into that is is perfect because it keeps them keeps them engaged keeps them it changes up week to week rather than doing the same workouts for nine months straight because there's only so many workouts you can do on the trainer <laughs> but the racing is going to be different every single time um whereas some of my other clients like me like I was a year ago, had never done Zwift before. So it, they're kind of, understandably so, they're kind of scared to jump into it. They've heard it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's You go 500 watts off the line and just hold it until you blow up, and it's just the hardest thing ever. And it's like, they're like, I don't really want to do it. That doesn't sound fun. And I'm like, well, <laughs> it'll be good for you. I don't want you to, like, dig yourself into a hole with this but I want you to try it and maybe try like a category below what you are expected to be at just to like, try to get used to the game, try to get used to the racing and the effort. And I think 
especially in 2020 when there was really no racing just to have something new to try was really um important for a lot of them i think a couple of them came to me um unprompted and said like how would you feel about me like jumping into a swift race i was like that sounds good to me (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's cool and yeah you did mention there is the possibility to over race with zwift um so i mean how how do you manage that for yourself i know obviously that would trickle down to your clients but you know how do you manage having fun and competing and being on all these different teams with the fact that you can't do that every day yeah it's it's been very tempting to sometimes race four or five days a week on swift um especially because doing the majority of indoor training now especially in the winter it's that's the most fun I have by far on Zwift doing a two hour ride on Zwift is it can be rough sometimes, (laughs) but doing an hour long race or doing two hour long races on Zwift. I mean, the time just flies by. So I'd rather do that most of the time. Um, this year personally, it's been really interesting to see how much my training has changed yet. How similar my power profile is. Whereas before I was doing a lot of zone two riding, a lot of 15 to 20 hour weeks. Now it's a lot of nine to 12 hours and races probably three days a week on average. And my power profile from, from 10 seconds to 30 minutes is the same or better than it was before, which is very interesting from a coach's perspective, from a scientist's perspective. I'm like, I know that my day-to-day fitness has gone down for sure, but I haven't been training for that at all. And my three-hour power has probably gone down. But even then, I did a race a couple weeks ago that ended up being four and a quarter hours on Zwift. And power-wise, it was the best power that I'd ever done for that long. I think I averaged just over 310, 315 watts for that amount of time. And I was like, I've never been able to do that before outside. And I haven't done a four hour ride in like six months. I don't know what's going on, but I'm not complaining. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're going to be a real case study in the spring when you get let loose and you can ride outside and there's some ultra distance stuff that you've got to train for. Um, Yeah. We're all just going to be stalking your Strava. Uh, to see to see what happened all those short-term power numbers that's interesting yeah well I know that uh, we're, we're getting up upon some uh, end of the the discussion because you've got another meeting to get to here soon so we want to touch on one final thing and we alluded to this earlier uh, about you uh, being a freelance writer writing for several websites and definitely don't want to Uh, talk with you and not dig dig into that a little bit you as an author you as a writer and you you know spoken about how you enjoy uh, power analysis and breaking it down uh yeah so let's discuss that uh you know who what websites you write for i'm sure people have probably read some of your stuff and they may not even know that was you uh and you're you've got quite a bit out there already you know, who are you writing for? And as you're doing that, like what info, what do you look at? What, what are the things that jump out to you? And how do you then take that data, a power profile 
and then tell a story with it and then convey that to to an audience to engage them to get them to read it yeah so with the writing going back to 2017 was kind of when i started uh reaching out to publications and i started with cycling tips at first um it was actually it wasn't power analysis at the beginning i was writing um some some short stories and physiology articles which is kind of a different style um than the power analysis uh which is very very organized very um I guess analysis heavy because it's power analysis, but that makes sense. Um, whereas before it was the short stories were very free flowing and that kind of thing. And then the physiology articles were very scholarly and very scientific. So then with the power analysis, it was kind of a blend of those two because I would look at the power numbers and that was the sciencey part of the article. But then what I really wanted to do and to give it to a wider audience and to get it in these publications that people would would read it is if I put it in the context of the race, because that's really what matters. I mean, you can look at power numbers all you want, but like no one reads the studies of like the professional athletes. Cause it's like, Oh, here's a chart of all their best power numbers. It's like, no one, I mean, some people read that, but not like the wider audience, the people that watch the races, they're like, Oh, if I can put this number on this attack, that Alda Philippe did to win the world championships. It's like, oh, people are going to recognize that. It's like, oh, that's like what it takes to be like best in the world in that moment on that climb. And really starting with looking at the biggest races and seeing a lot of it is me getting lucky on like who posts their power numbers because a lot of the best guys don't post their power numbers. <laughs> so I would follow the grand tours follow the classics and the world championships and just see if I could find those numbers and then put those in the context of the race. And then Bella news was, uh, the publication that reached out to me and was like, we love these articles. We want you to write these for us. And I was like, this is really cool because actually the power analysis started on my blog, I think in 2017, I was just like, an exercise science nerd <laughs> that was like, I kind of like this writing thing. I really like the power numbers. When I try to talk to my friends about the power numbers, they're all like, Oh, here Zach goes again, talking about the power numbers. <laughs> and I'm like, I still like reading about it and writing about it though. So like, I'm going to read, I'm going to write about it and then post on my blog. Maybe like, it'll be interesting to some people. And then little did I know that like, I got in contact with the right people and got my articles posted in the right places and all of a sudden it's like I'm writing these for Bella News and 20,000 people are reading them mm -hmm. and it's kind of insane like how quickly that happened and how far they've come from my blog to the front page on Bella News. So when you are you find these files uh, and you are digging into them what data are you specifically looking at and what do you take from it and how do you learn from it and apply it? What should others be looking at themselves, I guess, in their own race data, or if they are exploring themselves like you do, finding these files and, and looking into it? We all get enamored with peak power, mean maximal power for durations, but you still have to put it into context. So what should people be looking at, paying attention to, and then how do you utilize it? 
Yeah, I think that's that's probably the most complicated part for me as a writer and a coach is to look at the numbers of the pros and then try to apply it to myself or try to apply it to my clients because a lot of the times on the road, the pros are racing six hours and amateurs don't race six hours. <laughs> the longest races we do for most amateurs are probably three hours and we're not riding as hard as we can the whole time, like in a pro classics race, like tour of Flanders. So those guys are going full gas for five hours and then racing the last hour. And that's the part that we see on TV. It's like in amateur races, there might be some hard parts in the first half of the race, but it's probably going to be a sprint at the end. It's not going to be crazy hard. I remember looking at Vanderpool's sprint, um, when he famously won Amstel gold a couple years ago, when he had that crazy comeback ride and basically let out the field, the whatever was left of the field, he basically led led them out, led the sprint out and still won and no one ever came around him. And I remember that file and everyone was going crazy about the sprint, which was super impressive. I remember he did like 600 watts for 30 seconds, leading it out and then did like 1200 watts for like the last 20 seconds on top of that to win, (laughs) which is insane alone by itself. But then I remember looking at his file from that race and the chase that he had done to come back. I think he was at least a minute behind the front group at some point. And like in the last 30 or 40 minutes before that final sprint, I remember he had done he was riding at like 350 watts on the flats and then going 500 watts up every single climb. Mm. So he had just done like 40 minutes at 400 watts and then did that sprint on top of that. And then looking at that, because on TV, like he was behind the leader, so we never saw that part. So to put that into context for people to really understand, like, yes, he's a pro, he has a really good sprint, like he can do this one effort, but I mean, there's a lot of people in the world that can do like 12 her watts for a sprint, but to be able to do a threshold effort like that and then a VO2 effort like that and then a lead out like that and then a sprint like that, there's probably only one guy in the world that could do that, and it was him. That's the dream, man. That right there, that's the dream effort. Uh, yeah, quite amazing. I, I've watched that video over and over again. Yeah, I agree with you. The effort building up to the finish is the most impressive part of that. Uh, and, and I think that's something that, you know, we all just get wrapped up in, uh, the outcome of something, but we aren't always looking at how it actually happened. How did someone do that? And it's part just a gift that he has. And it's also part that he worked his butt off. And I think one thing that's really jumping out to me in this conversation, it sounds like you are learning and it's what I've been trying my best in part with Zach Gregg and, it's part of why we started this aspect of the podcast is that you're learning and it sounds to me like you've learned it pretty early is that there's the science side of coaching. You know, you have that background, but then there is this art. There is an art that comes with this and you have to be able to blend those two together to be effective. You know, you can know all the numbers and the science all you want, but if you can't apply it, you can't communicate it. Uh, if you struggle with that side of things, it's going to be very difficult to help other people 
accomplish big goals. Sounds to me like you're on your way doing that. Is that something that you had, it was a conscious thought of yours? And we can use this as like the wrap-up because you need to get going here soon. But I'm curious, just from a philosophical standpoint, I don't have the background that you and Zach Gregg have. You know, I, I come to it from a completely different angle, and I've tried to pick up this knowledge that you and he both went to school for. You know, it's a tremendous amount of learning that you went through uh, to get to this point, and I've had to learn it by being surrounded by people like you and absorbing it uh, through reading and teaching myself. And I'm, I can't speak about it or don't know the knowledge that you two do. So I lean on the art side of things. I've got to put it into context and apply it. So speak to that a little bit about how you've been able to blend those two things so well for yourself uh, and how important it is to you. Because that really, in the end, that's what it's all about. Uh, that's the name of our show, The Art and Science of Coaching. It's not one or the other. It's equal. Yeah, for me, I really see the science part as a lot of the numbers and putting workouts and zones into a training, like a training peaks platform and do this workout, this workout, there's this workout, this many hours per week. If you do this for this block, you're going to peak on this exact day for nationals. And for me personally, and with all my clients, I recognize that's not realistic. That's not real life. We're going to have things that come up. You might get sick. You might get injured. You're going to have work stress. That's the biggest thing that I noticed with my clients in 2020. Whereas before it would be, it would be, I had a bad race. I don't know how, like I might need a rest or something like that. Or I crashed. I need some time off, something like that. In 2020, there was none of that. It was, it was a lot more of I'll, all of a sudden my hours went up at work. I'm super stressed. I tried to ride today. I couldn't. And I would say, well, take three days off. Like you don't, if you're stressed, like you shouldn't be like pushing yourself in a workout right now, even though the numbers say you're fresh, the numbers don't know how you feel. The numbers don't know what you're going through right now, how much mental stress you have in your life. And that's really what I've seen is the art of coaching is really communicating with my clients one-on-one -on -one and really being like, like, just like, you can be honest with me. Like if, if I told you to do this workout or this race, this whip race on this day, and you don't feel good, like you don't have to do it. It's something that is, it's complicated, but it's easy at the same time. It's like, if you don't feel good, then like, don't push yourself. Don't dig a hole if you don't need to. And really trying to balance that with all my knowledge of the numbers and training peaks and the CTL and focusing on that. And some of my clients are like, oh, like, should I be peaking right now? Like, yeah, Training Peak says I should be peaking, but I don't feel good. And I'm like, sometimes the numbers fit, but a lot of times they don't. And I've just learned over the years, myself and my clients, to take it on an individual basis and kind of figure out what puts them in the best position to perform well and then also to train well consistently. I think that's the hardest thing is finding something that works week to week, keeps the stress low, keeps you fit, but it's something that you can do for a long, long time, not something where you're digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper, and all of a sudden you need two months off the bike and you need to rediscover 
your love with the sport because it's like, oh, I pushed myself too hard. That was not worth it. That was stupid. Well, we as coaches, you know, we have to prepare athletes to be the best they can be in the short term, but we have to do it with the long view, with the future uh, mindset uh, and looking out for their best interest, uh, health mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, all those things play a big role in our success. And if one or more of those things are out of whack, boy, it's going to make it really hard once you get on the bike and try to train. And, and if you try to compete, it's even uh, more difficult. Um, well, I'm really excited about what you're doing. And, and also, you know, Zach Gregg, I think you two and other young people like you who are now in this sport and are having these opportunities to be coaches and uh, the resources and the things you have at your fingertips and the experiences that you're building as pro racers uh, in all these different realms. Man, I just, I hope to still be around and I don't get kicked to the curb in 10 years because you, you all are well on your way uh, and I think you're going to accomplish a lot as athletes as well as coaches you're going to have both have a lot to offer people uh to help guide and shape them people of all levels of ability and we um we had intentions of talking about just the veteran space as well with what you're doing with project echelon and the influences you and zach Gregg have there which are phenomenal and we've talked at length about that within our within our show so uh I guess, is there anything that we have missed here? We have covered a lot of ground. You've shared a lot. Um, you know, what? maybe uh, explain how, where is the best place for people to follow you, to learn more about you and read up about you? Uh, and, you know, maybe we, we need to make you a regular guest on this show to talk about coaching and, at, and, and racing and everything because you've got a lot of good stories to tell. Thank you. Um, that'd be great. Um, you can find me. It's either Zach Nair or Z Nair Coaching, um, pretty much on any and all social media. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, my website is ZachNair.com. Um, Strava as well, if you want to follow my training and racing on there. Um, Zwift, I'm on there as Zach Nair. It's, I'm all over the place, so easy to find. My name is pretty much on everything. <laughs> well, we will include all those things in the show notes. Uh, so that people can easily find them. But uh, Zach Nair, we really appreciate you being on our show today of the art and science of coaching, sharing your perspective, sharing your stories, uh, and providing this, this insight to everyone. There's a lot of takeaways from it, whether you're outside in the real world or you're on the trainer in the virtual. I think there's a lot that people can learn from you. So really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much for having me.